the Giants began the season 0-2, while the Saints were 0-3. Both have only lost once since. This Sunday, they go head-to-head at the Superdome. Touchdown! Coverage begins at noon Eastern on ESPN Radio. You cannot lose games in the NFL and still win. One day I understand. One day, go see the baby be born and come back. You're a Major League Baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, see, don't answer. I mean, this are, these are all rhetorical questions because you know I told you and you know I'm not. Analytics don't work at all. It's just a crap to some people who were really smart made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer. He's a follower. He's a playmaker and a shot mama. In case you didn't know, I got T-Bowed. He shattered the mold and all he does is win. All, all, all he does is win. Hello and welcome to Hot Takedown, 538's podcast about the week in sports narratives. I'm Chadwick Matlin, an editor at 538, with me in the studio, the full crew, Kay Fagan, ESPNW columnist. Hi, Kate. Hi, Chad. Neil Payne, sports writer at What's 538. What's up? How are you doing? Doing How you good. Guys? How yeah. are you? Good. I'm really good. Guys, I'm not going to be here in the next couple weeks. That's right. And then you're vacationing again. Again, yeah. Vacation shaming. You're going to be so far away that you will have no chance to watch the Mets playoff run until the World Series. Is that right? As I've explained to you before, Neil... I booked a trip in April with the express purpose of ensuring the Mets would make the playoffs by not being by here not to, to witness it. it. Right. Right. And so sh- there, I mean, there seems to be a pretty clear correlation, sample size or no, I, or small sample size or no, it doesn't matter to me, between me leaving and the Mets making it. So I plan to move out of America to ensure a dynasty. A Mets Reverse dynasty. Jinx. Is this the first time this has happened or do you have other statistical evidence of like a previous year of well, I've been here for the last. Uh, uh, I have been on this earth for the last twenty nine years, okay. and the Mets have not been to the World Series since eighty six. Uh, let me let me think about that. In eighty six, yeah. I was two months old. They went to the World Series in two thousand. You're right. So so by, so you just busted my own my well, own. I'm just saying I, there was not a lot of validity in it to begin with. So I, I, just bl- had I blacked to out that two thousand World Series meal. That, that was that was really <laughs> impressive. I, in my head, they had not been to the Did 86. not happen. Okay, so on today's show, we're not going to talk about the Mets the whole time, shockingly. Um, but we, we are going to talk though. about we are going to talk about the baseball playoffs and whether um, the wild card game needs fixing. We're going to talk about the WNBA's uh, finals, Maya Moore, and the shifting meaning of the analytical ideal. Right? We're just going to talk about the analytical wow, ideal. Yeah, so poetic. It sounds so deep. It's philosophical. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about the kick apocalypse that visited the NFL over the weekend. <laughs> Is it real? Is it here? Is it here to stay? But first, you know, here on Hot Takedown, we think that any any hot taker should have the space to defend their own takes. And over the weekend, Trent Dilfer did just that unwittingly, perhaps. Um, he was doing some analysis on Sunday night on ESPN about the Giants-Bills game in the NFL. And he was trying to explain how the Bills had ruined their shot at winning through silly mistakes. <laughs> I'm giggling because there's a year ago, I think this week, that I it's saw Miami Real, the most brilliant analysis I've ever given about, you know, you can't win in the NFL. Yeah, yeah, the NFL tremendous. Tremendous. yeah I'm reminded about it every day. It was, <laughs> it was fantastic stuff. I dropped knowledge on you guys that day. <laughs> but I'm giggling because the point being, I wish I would have said it differently, it's hard to win when you're just giving things away you're giving freebies yes. to the other team you're giving first downs to the new york giants seven of them on penalties you're basically saying we want we want this to be harder you know that's good but 
That wouldn't it's not as good. I know. I, it's not as good. Okay, just check my Twitter. Check my winning. Twitter account or YouTube or anything if you want a rehash of a year ago. Today. It was brilliant. You know what? I'm reminded about it every day. Do you think he's listening to the Hot Takedown theme every day? Is that why he just got it on his so. iPod? Well, yeah, he must subscribe. And he knows that Tim Tebow is a gamer. Also, he, he he's just a listens gamer. To the whole thing. <laughs> so, do you guys? I mean, now that he's explicated a bit more uh, his take, there's some validity and value in, in what he's saying, right? That teams can't win if they're going to... Yeah. I mean, it's still not, like... He didn't make it super clear that he was saying that, right. first of all. I mean, one, I kind of always felt... Or I feel bad for anyone sometimes on TV when you didn't exactly mean what you said, and it's not like writing where you can go back and edit your sentence before you actually send it in. So he obviously had different thoughts in his head that did not get translated properly, but even the ones he shared just now on that hot take... Like, yeah, of course in the NFL you can't, like, give up seven first downs and and expect to win. But, I mean, it's a little bit more uh, of an insightful narrative than what we play on our theme. Do you guys know about the Kinsley gaffe in politics and how, like, when a politician says something he's not supposed to say, a Kinsley gaffe is that he actually meant it and that's why he said it? You know, it's not a gaffe that he said the wrong thing. It's that he said the right thing, but you're not allowed to say the right thing. I feel like a great hot take it's like it's actually the purest distillation of <laughs> of a simple thought, right? right? Expressed inartfully. It's a Freudian take. Yeah, a, yeah. <laughs> Freudian takedown. That's that's what this show is, is really all about. Um, okay, let's let's leave Dilfer behind and move on to baseball. The baseball playoffs are here. It's a beautiful time. October, autumn. The leaves falling. The grass shorn tight in the wow. stadiums. People wearing scarves to go see their favorite team play. Hot chocolate. But is it all just a crapshoot? You drink hot chocolate at the stadium, Kate? Yes. You're a big believer in hot chocolate stadium. I never quite oh, get it. Yes. Like the I Dunkin' Donuts, you are in line, ready to go. I was yeah. on Saturday at that Mets game. It was like about the, 35 degrees out there. Yeah, and there, there's no like hot toddy right. all, usually at the stadium. There's, so. your, there's your business innovation. That's true. I'm gonna, the bars like, start at the bars and stadiums. cocktails that are hot. At go. Major League Baseball Stadium, but only during a couple you know, months. It's seasonal, seasonal. Right, yeah, artisanal, seasonal. So for the Mets, it's going to become a booming business over the next. Few oh, I'm years. sure, yeah. especially if I'm in India. So uh, let's let's get back to the thread that we were talking about, which is <laughs> about the the, play, the baseball playoffs and what it takes to win. Here um, is Eduardo Perez on ESPN trying to explain, you know, what it what it takes, what a team, what the what the team chemistry and, and the team makeup needs to be in order to win. Pitching, defense, and base running. Then you have to be able to catch the ball. I don't. I cannot have any errors at all running the bases. And if you get those three down, the hitting will come. So what are you saying is you have to play well? You cannot lose games in baseball and still hope to win. <laughs> so, Neil, I've worked at 538 long enough to absorb some semblance of a, of a truism, which is that almost every playoffs and almost every sport are a crapshoot, and baseball seems especially a crapshoot. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's fair to say that, you know, like NBA playoffs are on the same level as something like hockey. Uh, but definitely baseball is one of the more random playoffs, it seems. Uh, and it's because uh, there's just like not enough of a gap, I think, in any one game between the better team and the lesser team, especially when you're talking about the playoffs, which is by definition very evenly matched teams, uh, to really get a reliable sample uh to judge teams on you know you're not finding the better team most of the time even in like a best of seven baseball series yeah because like in the nba playoffs there's no there's nothing we talk about where it's like well now you know it's going to come down to the center 
or now it's mm-hmm. going to come down to the point guard. It's still, in the, as the NBA playoffs move forward, and we tend to think of them as the quote-unquote most fair playoff, it's still just, or is that team going to play the way they play during the regular season? Where with hockey, all of a sudden there's this huge dependence on goalie. And in baseball, it's kind of like, well, do you have the number one starter who, when the days line up right, all of a sudden statistically you seem to have a better chance? It's just It's not the same exact parallel between what you need out of the regular season. That's why what Perez was saying about base running and fielding, whatever, that seems like totally alien to what I feel when I watch it. it, When I watch baseball now, what's thrilling to me is because it's so random, I really have no idea what's going to happen. And for a while, I was sort of on the other side of it, which was that, well, if it's all random, then the best team isn't winning. And then there's some like imperfection within baseball playoffs. But maybe that the best team doesn't always win is the perfection, right? That there is so much unpredictability. And I've really come around to that. And and weirdly, looking at the analytics and the sabermetrics has helped me become even more attached to the chaos and the randomness within the sport. Yeah, because, I mean, playoffs are marketed across the board as kind of like this exciting, unpredictable time. And so for baseball to, in some ways, capitalize on that emotion just plays into the whole point of why we're all watching sports to begin with that we certainly capitalize on with March Madness, college football playoffs. Like, in a way, it's not that fun if you're like, well, you know, the Blue Jays are the best team and then therefore 92% chance they're going to win. You're kind of just tuning in to make sure that thing happens. That's not what we want to see either. Yeah, it's kind of the best formula for the playoffs is to have that uncertainty in it because it causes people, I mean, you don't want to have so much uncertainty that it feels like, oh, the 162 games that we just played mean nothing. That's what college basketball does and that seems to work out okay. Yeah, it works out well. I think, uh, I mean, for someone like me, just personally, my opinion of March Madness, uh, the more random and chaotic I've kind of like understood it to be uh, has made me sort of lose interest. But hmm. maybe that's something endemic to college basketball where like it's not the same players every year also. And there's something right. about what that. What we're saying is chaos is marketable up until a certain point. Right. Right. And, right. and I always thought that the NFL found sort of the perfect sweet spot of that where, you know, the games during the season mean something, but there's also that element of randomness. And then once you get into the playoffs, you feel feel like you there, there was a mystery i think in baseball there's less mystery about who really is good and bad during the regular season because they play so many games uh but then that mystery is undone in the playoffs because you see teams that you just had this huge sample of games to know that they probably weren't as good kind of winning uh whereas in football i think you you have that mystery where you can kind of convince yourself oh well maybe the giants were the best team in 2007 you know and maybe you know all of those things but i think baseball Baseball is closer to that ideal um, that football has found than something like March Madness. We're not talking about analytical ideals yet. That's for the next segment, uh, Neil. So let's talk about this year's playoffs. Who's good? Who's bad? Neil, I've seen the sparks come flying out of your desk as you solder together a new model. Please don't tell me it's another ELO model. It is another Uh, ELO model. ELO. We we love ELO around here. Okay, so for the listeners... Who have not? Uh, who have who have fast forwarded through all talk of Elo in the past? <laughs> Tell them what Elo is and how it works in baseball. Well, I can't imagine they wouldn't fast forward through this as well. But uh, <laughs> Elo is a system that we use to sort of judge how good a team is at any given moment, and it's a pretty simple system. It was invented to judge chess players, actually, and it's just based on like 
giving a team a rating and then asking, well, what are the odds that each team wins? And if the result is expected according to those pregame odds, then you're like, well, those, you know, those odds were probably right and we don't have to make many adjustments to them. But if the result of the game really contradicts what your ratings were going into the game, then the ratings are sort of like self-correcting. They're like, oh, well, we messed up. We, you know, miss. Right. So, so, so the Cliff Dust yeah. version is you go up if you win, you go down if you lose. If you lose unexpectedly, you, you, you go down right. big. 1,500 is the average. Neil, who's the best team in the major league? In so the, major leagues? the Blue Jays right now have the best ELO rating of any team, uh, which is pretty amazing because they actually had a below average ELO rating on June 2nd, but hmm. they've had such a great second half, and also they picked up some players at the trade deadline. And ELO, one of the great things about it is it picks up on that and sort of is you're able to play yourself to, if you have improved your talent level, you can kind of boost your rating by playing better, and it picks up on it really fast if you continue to win as they do. Uh, and another thing that stood out to me about the ELO ratings is uh, that the second and third best teams in all of baseball, according to ELO, are the Pirates and Cubs who are going to play in a one-game play-in right. uh, to for the right to play in the division series. So I want to talk about wild card in a second, but Kate, sort of off the top of her head, said the Blue Jays have a 93% chance of making the playoffs, not right. having looked at anything. Do the Blue Jays, uh, sorry, <laughs> of winning the World Series. Neil, does ELO suggest that the Blue Jays have a 93% chance of winning the World Series? Did Kate, off the top of her head, get it exactly right to the number? Uh, n- the Blue Jays won the World Series in 1993, but they don't have a 93% <laughs> chance of winning yeah, it was the Freud- it was a, it was a World Series. Take. Freudian take. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, according to ELO, um, and it is a little bit more conservative than the betting markets about this, but not that much more. ELO says that there's a 19% chance that the Blue Jays will win the World Series. Right behind them are the Cardinals and Royals with 13% and the Dodgers with 12%. And those are the best teams in all of baseball. And yeah, we're well, the Mets. Come on, for me and Kate. And the and the Mets have a nine percent chance what? of make okay. of, of winning the World Series. A twenty percent chance of making the World Series. So these are all the compression of the ratings. They're very close to each other. So the Mets aren't really that much worse than even the Blue Jays if they had but, to play them. But why over the second half of the season did the Blue Jays catapult to such a spot? Whereas you know the Mets, well, since Wilmer Flores cried, <laughs> maybe later on in the season than just the second half. Did not gain as much, not gain as many ELO points. I, so I think some of it is, yeah, like you said, the later start. I think their run differential probably wasn't as good as the Blue Jays. The Blue Jays were just like blowing people out, um, you know, wow. right and left. There was a stretch where the Mets were doing that too, but I think you know less consistently than the Jays. And also, strength of schedule matters. The uh, the NL East has had, you know, they stacked a lot of games against the Marlins and against the Phillies and against a bunch of teams that are really bad. Whereas the Blue Jays were, you know, in the mix with the Yankees and and some of the other AL East teams. Right. One quick thing about the, the Blue Jays run differential, I saw a piece on Fangraphs earlier today, I think it was by Jeff Sullivan, in which he charted the amount of time on offense versus on defense for Major League Baseball teams. <laughs> the Blue Jays were so good on offense, they spent a full day, as in 24 hours, more time batting than they did pitching. Oh that, isn't that incredible? I thought that was a that great little nugget. That puts it into perspective. Um, so, Neil, I didn't hear you mention the, Card- the Cubs and Pirates as having a high World Series win percentage, is that because of this damn wild card one game playoff? Yeah, it really is. Um, according to ELO, they are the second and third best team in all of Major League Baseball, um, but they're Better than of, every other NL team. Every other Blue NL team. They're one. the two best teams in the NL. The Pirates are slightly team. ahead yeah. of the Cubs. Uh, and, you know, the records sort of reflect that the Cardinals, um, I think, had the, of course, had the better record, but it was just a few games, you know, over the Pirates. And uh, the Cardinals sort of tailed off toward the 
the end of the season where the Cubs certainly picked up steam uh, and the Pirates just had a fantastic season. But they are, have been shoehorned into this one game in which uh, Elo thinks that the Pirates have a 54% chance and by definition the Cubs have a 46% chance. And that really slices their odds of winning the World Series basically in half. They would have run about you know 14 to 16% chance each if they didn't have to play in this uh, one-game play-in. But because they do, it's taken... Basically, we know that one of the three best teams in baseball will be dead and gone hmm. in a after couple days. Game. Yeah, after one game. So whoever wins, though, is probably going to be second sure. behind the Blue Jays yeah. for, for, for their chance to win the World Series. Right. So these wild-card games. Right. We just got done talking about how random baseball playoffs are. And that's the whole baseball playoffs season, right? That's all of October. One game is like making that randomness and then bring it to a power of of 16 because there's you know or how 11 I guess because you need 11 wins to win I think that Yeah like right? I can't even imagine what that feels like for those players who you know have been in spring training since what February um to cut it down to after building up so much rhythm and hopefully like proving what your team's capable of and then taking all of that into one small sample size yeah, I mean, uh, so I think it depends kind of how you look at it. If, if you, you win or lose, team. I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, also, uh, yeah, it depends on whether you win or lose, but also, like, whether you really had this mindset of, like, okay, we're in the playoffs now, this is distinct from the regular season, and now we have this chance to sort of play ourselves in and anything can happen, then it is kind of disappointing and it feels unfair to be thrust into this situation. But there are also, think about, like, Plenty every baseball season there are cases where late in the actual regular season you have a set of games that you need to win and it, it, sometimes it even comes down to like one win that you know that you need to get and uh, but you that's know. part of a continuum. But yeah, but it's all part of a larger hundred and right. Sure, yeah. Game. I mean, sure, every game season. can be pivotal or not pivotal, but this is the league and its rules right. saying this has to be pivotal, and that seems and and for many teams and I maybe this is very maybe this is not the rotations are out of whack because they've needed to fight for that wild card position and so they aren't able to start their best starter so the quality on the field you might be seeing a number four starter or something I would guess you well no uh, Dallas Cutchell I guess is the number one starter for the Astros but in other years we haven't seen the best pitcher go and so it's not even the best product for baseball to be putting out there well I think in some ways it uh, even if you even if you start your best pitcher and it, it is a built-in disadvantage for the next series because then now you've already burned through. You have to yeah. turn around and, and within one or two days start your next series uh, of the actual division series, which used to be the playoffs, so, uh, you know, mm-hmm. so to speak. And uh, you have now lost your ace for that. So you know, there's a lot of ways in which it could be construed as unfair. And I think a, a lot of it, we as fans do benefit because – you know, Major League Baseball looked at situations where the season came down to like one game and they had to play a tiebreaker after the regular season. And those were really exciting. There was that moment in 2011 where the Red Sox, you know, came down to the end and culminated their mm-hmm. collapse in the last day of the season. And uh, those things playing out in real time were so exciting that I think baseball was just like, why don't we do this every year? Right. And that's good i think uh it reduces the chance because of the ace factor that i mentioned of one of these wild card teams you know reeling off wins in the next few series and uh, so i think it serves to help teams that are considered the favorites and kind of played better and earned it during the regular season but they still get a chance to get in and it gives one extra team or uh, in each league a chance to to do something so I wanted to talk about how to fix the wild card game or whether it should be fixed. Neil, I'm hearing from you. Maybe maybe it shouldn't. Um, but I don't think we have time for it. So uh, 
listeners in the proud tradition of you yes. guys fixing the NBA play, uh, draft lottery. Walt Hickey's Madden career. Now fix the MLB wildcard game if you think it needs fixing. Also, lang- the language around Dynasty. Yes, that's, that's right. I know that we right. fixed it, but we certainly solicited the Cleveland. responses. Yeah. Um, write in, podcast at 538.com. We'd love to hear from you. All right, on to the WNBA, where the Indiana Fever, as of this taping, hold a one nothing lead in the WNBA Finals over the Minnesota Lynx. In Game 1, it was a taut affair. It was down to the final possession, basically, when... Um, uh, Link's swing woman guard forward. We we were sort of Super trying star. to yeah f- trying to figure out what to classify her as. Um, Crowdsource that too. There you go. Podcast at five thirty eight dot com. Um, so Maya Moore uh, had the ball stripped from her uh, in the final seconds. Despite scoring twenty seven points, the Fever went on to win. The Lynx lost, but it got us thinking about Maya Moore and sort of where to classify her in the WNBA. Um, annals of players. Is, is she one of the best of all time? Neil, I know that you and Basketball Reference have, have had a deep relationship about Maya Moore over the last uh, little bit. But first, Kate, you said you spent time with her in China before that we were taking the show. Is that right? Yeah, I spent time with her in China for uh, a Brittany Griner documentary. Mm. Um, but Maya also plays over there, along with more and more WNBA stars, because the China League is shorter and they they pay a good amount of money. And, of course, a lot of these players like the fact that they get home before the WNBA starts. Um, but the point with the Maya Moore is that in China, those teams are only allowed to have one non-Asian player, unlike Russia and Turkey where, you know, like Diana Trousey and Sue Bird can play together. And in thinking about Maya Moore, especially this year and her usage rate um, and when combined with the fact that Lindsey Whalen, like a national team player, one of the best players in the league, has has hasn't been playing quite as much, especially I think the last game she didn't play like the last six or seven minutes. So Maya has shared a lot of that burden. And in watching her play over in China, she her usage rate, I mean, they don't keep this stat in China, but I think it would be incredibly, incredibly high. Well, in the WNBA, her usage rate is incredibly high. Mm-hmm. Last year in 2014, she was number one in the league and this year number two in the league. And so it seems as though the team is geared around her in a different way than the Fever are showing because in the Fever, none of their players were in the top 10 of, u- of usage rate this year. And so there are two different strategies at play. Yeah, the Lynx are obviously built to have a high usage rate around Maya Moore, and they're built around Maya Moore. And a lot, a lot of the other players, like Simone Augustus and Sylvia Fowles, more post players, Sylvia especially, Simone not quite as much, but also you know a, a big inside player. Um they have to rely on Maya's ability to create her own shot, which is something she's always done since her UConn days versus the Fever. They have a player kind of like that in Catchings who's a little bit older, 36, but they're very, they have a lot of really fast guards, and they just play a completely different style. And since the Lynx drafted Maya, like the whole point has been you have arguably someone who could be considered the best player in WNBA history when it's all said and done, and that style of play is completely driven around her. Yeah, they have uh, the the links really with Maya Morris thirty point five percent usage, which is super high. Like you're saying, Chad, they they don't have that many other players who are capable of putting up that kind of usage anywhere near there. They only have four players over twenty percent, whereas Indiana has six players over. Kate 20%. mentioned that Moore was maybe going to finish as one of the best players of all time. Neil, when you were, I think you were looking at uh, PER, uh, which is player efficiency rating. For the WNBA, is she within that spitting distance? Oh, sure. Yeah. If you look at the all-time career leaders, first of all, 
you got to give props to Cynthia Cooper, who was um, one of the great players in the first few seasons of the WNBA, and she had been a great college player, and uh, you know didn't really have a chance to play in the U.S. professionally because there really wasn't much. The WNBA only started existence when she was you know sort of past her prime, and she still dominated. She's the all-time leader in PER. She's also the all-time leader in win shares per 48 minutes, and it's not even close. But uh, and we had talked about this, I think, about women's college basketball, like the evolution of the game and the increased you know level of talent makes it harder for players to dominate the way that you know if you're a Cynthia Cooper drop down you could and so that's I think it's a credit to Maya Moore that she's third all time in win shares per 48 minutes and fifth all time in PER uh, and is still sort of building on it she's just now you know in her prime so I, I think it's fair to say right Kate that she could go down as the best ever or one of the best ever certainly you know already probably is one of the best ever yeah and her tra- her trajectory is to that space and I think more so in women's basketball than men's we kind of take into account how somebody performs at the college level because unlike the NBA the WNBA is not in the spotlight quite as much as the college game. So in these types of conversations, I would even more so lean also on the fact that Maya won three titles at, at UConn as the foundation for then her trajectory currently, which I don't know that I would feel that way if we were talking about you know best ever NBA player. I wouldn't be like, well, Michael Jordan also won at North Carolina. Like I wouldn't even – that wouldn't entertain that thought. Yeah, that's really interesting how um, when we uh, – you know, the the – NBA, the Naismith Hall of Fame, is actually a basketball Hall of Fame that does and uh, is explicitly designed to take into account college stats and accomplishments and all of that. And some players, you know, like Bill Walton, I think, you know, benefits greatly from having, in addition to his kind of relatively short pro career, he won a championship. He also has all those UCLA accomplishments. But for most players, yeah, for like a Michael Jordan, we're not talking about the championship at UNC as, as part of his ring count, you know, that you would use to kind of ward off Kobe Bryant or, or LeBron James and some of these guys Kobe and LeBron don't even have like a college career mm-hmm. but it doesn't even matter you know all that matters is in the pros but you're right like the WNBA the the college resume really I think does provide almost as much weight you would think as um, because the you know if you played at a UConn you're having to kind of go through you know the gauntlet of players that you will face eventually in the WNBA also um, trying to win a college championship and it's often why people will pass over Cynthia Cooper in discussions of greatest ever is because I think she played at USC, but she kind of played in this era before mid-90s when the UConn made that undefeated run and they were on the cover of SI, which ushered in a little bit more of a media spotlight era to the women's game. She kind of fell into this a little bit of abyss in her college career and then had to play overseas before the WNBA launched for a number of years. And so she doesn't have that same um, name recognition among women's college basketball fans or, or quote-unquote basketball fans in general from her college days. Right. It's kind of an interesting space to be in because like Cheryl Miller, for instance, didn't play in the WNBA, so it's all she has is her college career. But then Cynthia Cooper doesn't really have the benefit of the long pro career, but also you know the college career isn't separate and unto itself and in like distinctly another era. So I want to shift the conversation a little bit away from more and, and to the links more generally and get to this analytical ideal thing that I was talking about earlier, which is um, we ran a piece on 538 by Ian Levy about how the strategy in the WNBA is quite different than in the NBA around 
NBA around three-pointers. And so in the NBA, you know, we've seen an explosion of teams taking corner threes, for example, because it's a high-percentage shot. In the WNBA, the, the, percentage, the, it, the three is not as high percentage of a shot. And so teams are playing much more of a long two and post game. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the piece was sort of about how, you know, how different the, this analytical ideal, how different what good analytical strategy is in the, in the same sport, but in different circumstances within yeah. that sport. Kate, yeah. I know you had some thoughts about yeah, it. Yeah, it's, I had a lot of thoughts on this um, and three-point shooting in the WNBA coming from someone, me, who's three-point shooting was like the only reason I played college basketball <laughs> was because I was quite good at that. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about how while I was growing up, I only ever considered a three-pointer at the 19-9 level because that's all that ever existed at for the women's game for, for when I was like, this is like late 90s, early 2000s. And there was the international FIBA distance, but high school was 19-9, college was 19-9 at that time, and the WNBA didn't exist mm-hmm. yet. And so unlike with the men's game where young players, I think, would know that there was the high school lane, line, but they would also be like, NBA range. I mean, I certainly knew I certainly knew that there was NBA range, but there was at no point in my future projections was I was I thinking that I need to shoot a 23 foot three pointer and to learn how to shoot and to learn how to. And so when you actually consider how a lot of the players right now in the WNBA where the line now has been moved to FIBA rules, which is 22 feet, like one and three quarters inches, but grew up thinking 199 was all they knew. I mean, that's a that's a significant change that they never even thought. So I think we are seeing right now a bit of a dip in three-point shooting percentages in the league. And I don't know if it comes from some of the shifts we've seen over the last like three to five years in these distances, but I think that's part of it. And it's also part of how we always make the parallel between um, where the WNBA is versus where the NBA was when it was 20 years into its progression. And I went back and looked at like the three-point percentages for the NBA about 20 years after they introduced the three-point line, and they took a significant dip. And I don't know exactly like theoretically why that might be, but they went from like like sixteen, seventeen attempts a game to only like twelve or thirteen, and then they they've been steadily building back up to where they are now. And I don't know if it's like if for when you're in that certain stage of growth, you have specialists, and then you get away from that into a completely well-rounded player. Like there's less three-point specialists in the NBA than there probably were in the late 80s, right? Because now you have Steph Curry. Did I mean, the NBA ever move their, their line back? They did, yeah. They moved it closer and then moved it back to where it originally was in the mid to late 90s, I want to say. Yeah. yeah. So just even Kyle Korver, who we thought was a specialist, kind of broke out of that shell and proved that he does different things. So it's kind of like the WNBA right now is in a little bit of a transition period about how it's going to use that three-point line. Well, and, right. And it could be that, that you, players learn how to shoot the longer three. And, and if, I mean, there's right. so much... There's so much efficiency to be exploited if you can shoot the three well mm-hmm. that presumably there is a real opportunity for players on coming up to be three-point specialists, the same that there is in the NBA now that the line is further away. Right, and it might be one of those paradox of skill things where, like the, you know, if there are if it's early in the evolution of an idea or a strategy, the teams that are the early movers on it will be the ones that sort of reap the biggest benefits. But then the subsequent seasons will go by and uh, everyone will kind of pick up on it and then they'll start doing it more. And then ironically, like everyone will be good at this one thing. And maybe that's what we're seeing more in the NBA because the NBA wide three point percentage, even from the longer distance is, uh, you know, it's 35 percent. And in the WNBA, it's 32 
2.5%, but it's not like it's a difference in shooting ability necessarily because uh, on the women's side, the free throw percentage is a lot higher. It's 80%. In the NBA, it's only about 75%. So that also could be playing into it because uh, you know, you're not going to get free throws typically. Uh, you know, you're not going to get fouled a lot if you're taking a lot of three-pointers uh, unless you're a James Harden type who also mixes up sort of drives at the basket. Uh, so it could just be also playing to the incentive of you know you want to be close to the basket and draw more fouls because they're more efficient to to shoot free throws in the WNBA. Yeah, that's interesting, Neil, and and I think we have to leave it there. But that the idea that um, that every sport that the analytics, analytics revolution suggests that we have hard and fast truths, but the hard and fast truths are just as dependent on the rules as as they are outside of sports right? and what everyone, everyone else, else is doing. doing. Right, absolutely. Okay, one last thing, guys, on the on the WNBA. As I was researching this segment. I saw that there are 12 teams in the WNBA, only three of which end in S. So the Fever and the Lynx, they do not. Nine mm-hmm. of the 12 teams. The Liberty. The Liberty, absolutely. The, the Sun, dream. the Sky, the Dream. Here it, and, and in the four major men's sports leagues, nine teams total don't what, end in What's S. your theory? Explain this. So my theory, uh, trust me, I have a theory. My theory is that it's a weird gender, the gender is baked into it, which is to say... That for women's sports, we name women's teams as though they are one collective whole, as opposed to individual people who make up a whole, as there, is, as there would be if a team ended in an S. So, you know, the, the Mets, for example, right? There are individual, there are individual, there are 25 Met, Mets or whatever yeah. that make up the Mets. And the Lynx and the Liberty and whoever else, they are a cohesive whole as is. Now, huh. couldn't it just also be that the WNBA is so new that all of the plural names were taken and and when you look at expansion teams like the Magic and the NBA, for example, that's very possible. But come on, you can that pluralize sounds, anything. I like, I like it better when it's this whole like I'm, uh, one team gender. Right. My, my, reasoning. Yeah, my my um, feminist dissertation is coming about the WNBA <laughs> naming rituals. Okay, now let's really leave it there and move on to the kick apocalypse. The NFL moved back its extra point, of course, in the off season. I think we talked about that on Hawk Takedown. Um, heading into week four, the NFL's field goal percentage was lower than it had been the year before, 75% instead of 84%. That actually has nothing to do with extra points. Then in week four, what some are calling the kickpocalypse were upon us. 18 missed field goals and extra points combined in week four. I cannot think about kicking guys without thinking about Ben Morris, 538's other sports writer, the West Coast sports writer, Beyond Neal. Ben Morris, making his hot takedown debut, is on the line from L.A. Hi, Ben. Hello. So, Ben, before we get started and you tell us whether the kickpocalypse is here, I want to read to you something that Peter King, the Sports Illustrated columnist, wrote this week uh, about more missed field goals. I think the trend, and this is our hot take for this segment, I think the trend has to do with the youth at the position. 12 of 32 teams are using kickers in their first years with their teams, and the mental gain that the longer point after touchdown has forced kickers to deal with. Kickers are lottery tickets. You just pick one and pray. Ben, is it true that they are just lottery tickets? Well, I mean, that's a different question than the apocalypse. Um, I, I don't know. I, I mean, Justin Tucker is doing very well. Uh, there are eight kickers so far that haven't missed any field goals this year, so... I don't know if you would say that uh, they're lottery tickets. Um, I, I think he's very, very, very slightly right that kickers are doing a tiny bit worse this year than last year, but it's not 
by much. And uh, I think the kickpocalypse this last weekend was, you know, not a great weekend for kickers. But for the season as a whole, their performance is still more or less in the range of expectation. Yeah, I mean, is that uh, a weekend like last weekend? That's something that probably has happened before, right, Ben? Like, even before the mental challenge of the extra point being moved back or whatever was true, right? Uh, yeah, there were worse weekends. I remember last weekend or last season there was a weekend in which the kickers missed a bunch of, of kicks, and I considered writing about it, and then <laughs> it was just, uh, you know, it just seemed like variance. But I think... This weekend, it got a little more attention because a lot of them came kind of at very important times in in games, like the the New Orleans kick. Uh, they ended up winning the game anyway, but it came right at the end. Uh, and um, and uh, Scooby, uh, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I think as far as a particular like one weekend phenomena, it's not particularly interesting. Um, you know, they missed some kicks, whatever. Uh, the season as a whole, uh, I, I don't know the exact stat that Chad is referring to, but uh, I have their numbers broken down here, and they're they're not really doing significantly. They're maybe a percent, like a weighted one percent behind last season, uh, based on the length of the kicks they've been taking, um, and that varies a lot by distance. They seem to be doing extremely well at long distances. Actually, they're having record years at from forty five from forty five on they're having the best season in the history of the sport uh, and then from you know like 40 to 45 they seem to have been struggling a bit that's where they've missed uh they've missed 14 14 kicks of that distance is is extremely high uh and then below that they're doing pretty well also they've missed some extra points but the extra points they've been making almost exactly the same percentage as you would expect them to uh for a 33 yard kick yeah, well, when the NFL moved back the extra point, like statistically, what percentage were we expecting that to shift from like m- make expected percentage with it at one distance versus moving it back? Well, with that, well, at the old distance, they made 98% or something. At the new distance, just as far as 33 yard field goals go, they should be making somewhere in the range of 90 to 93%. Um, but they're also 33-yard field goals right from the dead center of the field, and they have time and that sort of thing. So I've uh, estimated that they should make that kick as much as 95 to 96% of the time, especially considering that factoring in the fact that kickers tend to get better. Um, and this year so far they've been making about 94%. So they're, they're pretty much right in – they're slightly below my highest, uh, my highest estimate, and they're slightly above the – the lower estimate. So we've already disproved Peter that. King one way. Let's now do it the second way. Also in that thing that he re- that I read, um, he said that the trend, which you've now suggested is is not actually a trend, has to do with youth at the position. Um, ben, when I've read your stuff, especially, so you, you wrote a piece for 538 uh, earlier th- this year called Kickers Are Forever. That That's about uh, kickers getting better and better and better throughout all time in the NFL. And we can really see the development of a skill position that way. And what you've written about is that there's a new crop of kickers, rookies and, 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 and recent entrants into the league, that, are, that seem to be maybe some of the best kickers of all time, especially once you factor in how many they're making in the era that they're making. So it seems like King is off about the use of the position too, right? He seems way, way off on that one. I mean, even more so than the trend, which is at least visible. You can kind of understand it. I don't know. 
where this youth thing is really coming from. Um, you know, there's one pretty bad rookie kicker this year is Kyle Brinza is he's missed eight kicks this year, including, uh, I believe two extra points. Um, so, you know, he's not doing a particularly great job, although he's also made a bunch of, uh, he made like two kicks of more than 55, 55, uh, more than 55 yards. So it kind of reminds me of Greg Zerline. He seems to have a lot of leg, but he hasn't, uh, yet mastered consistency. Um, and Kyle Brinza just so got released by the Buccaneers was, in the last day. What? The Buccaneers um, just released him. Did he, how did he get released? Oh, okay. Well, I was going to say, uh, if there's a candidate to be released, I was going to say it would be him <laughs> rather than Vince Kobe, uh, who was probably a bit of a, a, a quick release in my view. But, uh, yeah, Brinza's been pretty terrible. Uh, but aside from that, the young kickers are doing pretty, I mean, especially the ones that were a few years ago, like Justin Tucker is still the best kicker in the history of the league. Um, probably whether or not you wait for era, um, although there have been some good ones back in the day. Um, uh, Chandler Catanzaro is really good. He's a second-year player. Uh, Brendan McManus is probably he has statistically the best season so far. Uh, he has yet to miss a kick, and he's made, I think, four field goals of over 50 yards, I want to say. Um, so, Ben, ben let me interrupt and, and just ask. So, the one, of, one of the other... Um things we were looking out for when the extra point was moved uh, dozens of yards back was whether or not it would incentivize coaches to go for, for two more often. <laughs> have we seen any movement on that with the numbers? I don't know if you have those in front of you. Uh, I don't have it in front of me. I looked at it last week, I guess. Uh, you've seen a, a, you know, a small shift towards going for two more often, like with the Steelers, but overall they do not seem to be responding to the math, especially if, if it settles down and kickers are making the extra point only like 94% of the time which is, sounds ridiculous, but if that's the case, then the math would suggest going for two kind of way more often, um, and that has definitely not been the case yet. But you've seen it a little bit. You know, they're on pace to have more two-point attempts since the, the first year it was introduced, I think. Okay, so Ben, when the next kickpocalypse is upon us, or at least discussion of the next kickpocalypse is upon us, what, 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 would you, what kind of guide would you give the average you know, NFL consumer to survive it. How, how do you beat back uh, these kind of short-term uh, rushes to judgment? Should we just, you know, read your Kickers Are Forever piece by candlelight as, as a sort of mantra to, to, to remind ourselves that Kicker is actually great? Yeah, I mean, that helps. Or also just look <laughs> that, at that's what you do. <laughs> just look at the breakdown by distance, and you'll see that, uh, you know, on Pro Football Reference is a very convenient uh uh, page broken down by distance for the history of the NFL, and you can see that in 2015 as well, there are a couple distances that are doing a little bit worse, but overall, the numbers just get better and better, and will likely continue to do so. Well, Ben, um, one of the things I remember back, like maybe 10 years ago, when sort of football sabermetrics was just kind of being in the public eye at all. Well, one of the things uh, that that people would put out there was like this idea that oh, well, kickers are so random on uh, field goals that they derive a lot of their value from sort of the hidden value of kickoffs. Um, but that must be less true now than before, right? Because they moved the kickoff distance, and we're seeing a lot of touchbacks and everything. Do you have any sense of whether like the the kickoff uh, value is a lot less than it used to be, and so now it's kind of actually come back to the kickers just being able to flat out make field goals. Um, I mean, I think better kickers have made field goals more often, and it has a 
fairly significant impact on the game. So I guess I'd reject that theory in the first place. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the changing of the of the uh, kickoff spot has has uh, has definitely affected the the uh, math on that. I mean, it used to be a kicker could get you touchbacks regularly had a fair amount of value from that alone, but that's extremely common now. So. So you don't have as much uh, variance on that axis as far as kicker value. All right, Ben, we're going to let you go. Good luck uh, polishing your your steel toe boots. Uh, I know that you know someday you're still hoping to break into the kicker ranks yourself. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll talk to you <laughs> next time. I think I've never kicked a football, by the way. Okay. <laughs> All right, that'll be our yeah. next stunt journalism project for you. <laughs> you bet. All right, Ben, take care. All right. From one guest to another, but this guest is a regular. You know, she, she basically lives here. It's Allison McCann, a visual journalist at 538, here to bring us our significant digit, a telling number from the world of sports. Allison, welcome back. Hey. What have you brought us this week? Um, this week I have a significant digit that is near and dear to me. Uh, I've spent the last, which feels like forever, uh, on this big NBA project that we have rolling out this week. Um, and so the digit comes from that. It is 83.1, uh, which is the total projected war over the next seven years uh, for Anthony Davis. And uh, he is what our, our new big NBA, uh, I guess, projections model that we're calling, nicknaming Carmelo. Uh, it's not just about Carmelo, um, but it says that Anthony Davis is the most valuable long-term commodity in the NBA. Okay, so Carmelo looks at a current person and predicts their future based on what past people like them have done? Correct. Um, Carmelo stands for this crazy convoluted thing that uh, I think Neil had some it's, part in coming up it's with. career arc regression model estimator with local optimization. We took a, some liberties with the, uh, the, the acronym a little bit, but... Did you decide you wanted to name this model after Carmelo and you fit the language to... No, be an acronym no, for Carmelo. Or did it, you just start to notice career arc? That's right. It was a and total you were like, oh my god, let's fit this for Carmelo. That it it came out as being Carmelo. We didn't even think about it. We just it was clearly going to be a career arc regression model estimator with local optimization. Am I to believe this the whole time? So to get back to Davis, so so Carmelo says, what was it? Eighty win, eighty something win shares in seven years. Sorry, eighty eight war in seven years. Yeah, eighty three point one is his uh, total projected war. Uh, for the next seven seasons, and that's the best of anyone. Uh, yes, for the for the, more than LeBron. Yes, if we look at all seven years in this year, LeBron is still above Davis. Uh, so is Steph Curry and James Harden. But uh, over the long run, I guess we're calling him a long-term commodity, as Nate says. Um, oh, commodity. That really that doesn't feel creepy at all. Guys. <laughs> I'll talk to Nate about that. Um, okay, and so basically, LeBron's old is what this also means, right? Yeah, and Davis is young. Correct. Uh, I'm assuming if I have like Throwing 10 different here. questions, I have to wait until this comes out. Yep. Okay. Thursday. Ask one of the 10 questions. What, what is Carmelo's war? Ooh. Carmelo. In, within Carmelo. Carmelo the, the model hates Carmelo the, Carmelo, the oh, person. Really? Yes. There, it, so Carmelo the model is an ironic uh, model? <laughs> yes. He, he slowly drops towards 0.2 war in the final stages of his career. Uh, so Carmelo is not kind to Carmelo. What's his overall war? Like over the next whatever uh, it, it is, it's it's around four point three right now, and it slowly gets lower. Wow. So if I had a ballpark, it's less than ten mm. in the next seven mm. years. Compared to that eighty-three number, that we got to get Carmelo Ooh. on here to talk about Carmelo. About I'm also Carmelo's wearing Carmelo's, Carmelo's right now. Ooh. 
This is Carmelo to the fourth power. I know. It's a lot. Okay, Allison, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. And we'll do a proper segment on Carmelo at some point in the future. Um, Not sure exactly when, but stay tuned and listen for that. And this week on 538, you can see the interactive model that Allison, as she said, has been putting um, so much work into for the last few weeks. So check that out. And two last programming notes before we go. First, for you baseball diehards, 538 is going to be live blogging the NL wildcard game between the Chicago Cubs and the Pittsburgh Pirates. I will be there pulling the strings on Wednesday night. Neil will be there writing Riding feverishly as I, as I lash him. Uh, Carl Bialik, who you've heard talk about tennis on Hot Take Down, will be there. Rob Arthur, 538's baseball columnist, will be there. Maybe Ben Lindbergh from Grantland. It should be fun. All-star team. All-star team. Neil, you also have an announcement for those of our listeners who are in New York. Is that right? Right, yeah. So I will be speaking alongside uh, fellow 538er Walt Hickey. His video game heard. self or his actual self? Possibly both okay. because we're going to be talking about Madden um, and, and the strange culture of Madden ratings and all of that. Uh, it'll be also hosted by the aforementioned Carl Bialik. Yeah, Carl and, this uh, that's right. And uh, John Boys from SB Nation who writes Breaking Madden will also be there. Uh, and it's called Varsity Letters. Uh, it'll be Monday, uh, October 12th at 7.30 p.m. at Gallery Le Passant Rouge. Immaculate in, French. That in the really village nice. in New York. So check it out if you're around. Okay, that'll do it for this week's show. Thanks to Kate Fagan. Thanks, Chad. Thanks to Neil Payne. You're welcome, Chad. Thanks to Jody Avergan, our podcast producer, and Ryan Nantel, our video producer. We get production assistance from Jordan Shulkin and Lois St. Jacques. Our intern is Sarah Patterson. You can email us at podcasts at 538.com. We'd love to hear what you think about the podcast, about the NL wild card, about Car- how we could have brought Carmelo to the fifth power. You know, should we have been wearing Carmelo jersey with our Carmelo shoes? You can find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Downcast, all sorts of other apps. Or on iTunes, subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. Be sure to review and rate the show while you are there. It helps others discover the program. Our theme song is by Mystery Mansion. I'm Chadwick Matlin. Talk to you next time.